Welcome to Adopting Zero Trust, an independent podcast that dives into the world of zero trust and tells the story of people who are adopting it. Throughout our series, we'll investigate why zero trust is becoming a critical concept for cybersecurity. Our hosts, Elliot Volkman and Neil Dennis, will have transparent and open conversations with the people driving modern security approaches forward while leaving vendor hype behind. It's time to remove implicit trust and buzzwords and get to the root of the movement. Hey there, Elliot here, the producer for AZT, interrupting real quick before we get to a rather compelling episode. We are officially at episode 19 of season two, which means we are at the end of the season. It's the season finale. Unfortunately, we have a wonderful guest to kind of take us home. Neil and I might do a wrap episode, so, you know, check your feed in a couple of weeks to see if something pops up. But if not, have a fantastic and wonderful holidays. We will see you sometime in January when we appear back for season three. For season three, we're also going to start opening up some ad opportunities and creative opportunities to work with some of the cybersecurity vendors that tend to reach out to us. But otherwise, we're going to do our best to keep this focused on practitioner voices as part of our series, because at the end of the day, that's kind of what we built this series for. And that's primarily who our audience is, uh, you all. So that being said, thank you all so much for bearing with us and being part of this journey for season two. Um, also, if you haven't already, go to adoptingzerotrust.com where you can subscribe to our show notes and updates. I also, we'll be giving away a Flipper Zero, which within context of this episode, I think that is the right thing to be giving away to wrap up season two. If you're not familiar with what a Flipper Zero is, it is not what it says on the box. Um, it's basically a hacking toy. So for legal purposes, you have to be in the US, uh, you have to be 18 or older, and if you do something stu- stupid with it, it is not our fault. Um, well, you can blame Neil. He, he's better at that than I am. Anyways. Uh, check out Adapting Zero Trust. We will be giving away a Flipper Zero. There'll be details there. It's pretty straightforward. So subscribe. uh, And that's basically how you enter. Easy as that. Anyways, off to the episode. I love this one. I think it's fantastic. Thank you again for being here. We'll see you next season or the wrap episode, whichever happens first. Hello, and welcome back to Adapting Zero Trust or AZT. I'm Elliot Folkman, your producer, alongside Neil Dennis, your host, And today, we have a little bit more of a unique conversation, which will start with providing some background and context from our guest, and then jump into our typical focal points, which will have some semblance and resemblance to Zero Trust. So that said, I'm just going to jump right into it, because this man has quite a bit of a history. I would be shocked if you are not familiar with him to some extent, especially if you've been in InfoSec and then into cybersecurity. He's, it's maybe a little infamous, but certainly paid his dues and going to provide a lot of context that I think folks like ourselves would be very interested in, especially when we jump into the pen test side of this conversation. So without further ado, and again, Hector, I'm sorry if I messed up your last name, but we have Hector Munsiger, who's currently the director of research for an organization who may or may not have started with a significant black hat history, a co-founder of an organization called LulzSec and also was known as Sabu. So if you are not familiar with his background, we're going to have a little abridged conversation. So with that being said, Hector, maybe you can open up that can of worms. How did you jump into this world? I know we were just chatting and it is exactly where I want to pick back up. But, you know, when you started, you know, there wasn't 
higher education programs to help you understand how to pen test and break into things in a safe or legal-ish way. But yeah, you know, tell us about yourself. How did you get into this? And then, you know, that'll lead us to the the regular conversation. Yeah, sounds great. Emphasis on the legal-ish, for sure. <laughs> and, and, and by the way, before we start here, a uh, big shout out to you, Elliot, for reaching out. Of course, Neil, for having me, both you guys. It's, so far, it's been a pleasure, and I'm, I'm looking forward to our conversation. So in terms of how I got involved in cybersecurity, um, it really started by accident, man. You know, it started like uh, I think a lot of folks from my era, that mid 90s, early 2000s, you know, era where, you know, they may have seen a film or two, right? The films that really got me interested was like War Games and the Nets, you know, the common ones that you hear from everybody, right? Sneakers and, you know. (laughs) Some other films hackers. out there. You gotta always reference hackers, right? Hackers, yeah. <laughs> hackers was, you know, it was crappy as it is, but you know, it was it's cultural. It was interesting. Yeah, it was interesting because it, it, it introduced me to the concept of like the scene. There's groups of people out there that collaborate, you know what I mean? And when you watch war games, it's just the, the, the one kid from the suburbs by himself. You know what I mean? He has the fortune of having computers and a and an external modem. He has he has access to certain resources. The nets, right? We have a successful malware researcher she's fantastic shout out to sandra bullock and she has a job right so it's like these are people that like are individuals they're they're introverted and and so hackers introduced the concept of wait no it's beyond that there's groups of us out there and we do mingle sometimes and of course the famous scene or the infamous scene of risk is everything right the introduction of the risk architecture that was new to me i had no idea what the hell risk was and and here we are in 2023 we finally get access to it right but anyways, <laughs> I, you know, I got online in the mid 90s. I was 11 and a half, 12 years old. I think 12 was a solid number there for sure. And, you know, my foray into the internet, my introduction was to AOL. That was where it started. And then on AOL in those days, there was a whole scene dedicated to writing custom proggies. That's what they called them, or programs. So these programs will automate certain AOL functionality. But very soon you learn, right, that it was lame because there's so much more you could do. But I, I, I definitely give kudos to that time and the developers of that time because they introduced me to programming and, you know, playing with basic and then eventually visual, visual basic 3.0, which was 16 bit. You know, I got to learn some basic concepts of API and basic concepts of, of, you know, how to call a library and how to pull a function from, you know, a, a DLL, for example, or, or OCX or whatever. And then I found myself on IRC, right? Internet relay chat, for those of you that are not that familiar. And IRC was the Wild West. It was the place to be. If you wanted to learn, that's where you go. If you want to, you know, enjoy some, some craziness and get cursed out in every possible language and See all the racist stuff you ever want to see in your life. All the stuff that was available on the internet at that time, you could get it in a single IRC channel if you wanted to, or a single IRC network. In my case, it was FNet. I'm not sure about you, Neil. I think Neil, you was probably an FNet guy too, but I'm, not, I'm just speculating. FNet is where a lot of us got started from that era. And and yeah, you know, now once you're on FNet, once you're in the IRC, and people are now sharing things, they're sharing exploits. You know, it's funny. For those of you that don't know, that you're probably in the industry a little bit more recent, you might go on Twitter, you might see an exploit for sale for $8 million, or even the iOS zero-click vulnerability and sandbox escape with the user land 
privilege escalation. That's going for like, you know, I think I think a Russian marketplace offered twenty million dollars or something like that. But back then you were getting it for free, right? Because researchers and practitioners were very much about the knowledge is power. Let's share that. And by the way, let's hack the Gibsons along the way. So I got into looking at exploits. I started to learn C. And then one day I read a really good article. This was in the mid to late 90s on CGI exploitation. So back in those days, and I'm sorry I'm going a little bit long, Elliot. Feel free to cut out. No, no, you keep going, man. This is still the bridge version. (laughs) If this is a bridge, man, damn. I mean, Um, you get a whole podcast focused on this, which I guess might as well do a little shout out here. Definitely (laughs) check that out, too. Remind It's Hacker and the Fed, right? You also probably have another one. No, it's just Hacker and the Fed. It's literally me and the guy that arrested me. (laughs) And we became good friends. (laughs) Big shout out to Chris Tarbell. He is the man. Definitely. If you guys ever have like a, if you ever looking for someone from that perspective, definitely hit, uh, hit him up. Nice. So, so, yeah, not to cut things to the end, but that sure. that is almost the punchline a little bit. <laughs> Pretend you didn't hear that part, but yeah, absolutely check out Hacker and the Fed too. There are some really interesting stories uh, along there. So anyways, Hector, yeah. go on. The The floor is yours. Yeah. So I read I read a write-up and I wish I could remember the name. The guy literally, his name was, uh, I forgot. If I, if I figure it out, I'll let you know. But it was, it was obviously a pseudonym, you know, some some random, you know, set of characters. And he wrote about exploitation of web servers by means of CGI. And before, you know, PHP became very popular, and now you have, like, Node, and you have all these different technologies. If you went to a website back in the mid-'90s, you may notice, you know, the, the, the hosts, the path, and then index.cgi or something.cgi. And CGI stood for a common graph, common gateway interface. There you go. And basically what it was is it was, you know, a interface between you, the user, and the backend server. And in the middle was something. And that something was either a C binary, okay, or a Perl script. So this is where it gets fun. Because now I'm like, damn, I don't want to... I don't want to go too deep into C because all of this is still new to me. Mind you, I'm 13, 14 years old. I'm still absorbing this stuff as I go. I had no mentors. I had no proper education. So I was like, okay, I'm still learning. I think Perl might make more sense because it is a, it is a, a scripted language. And for those of you that didn't mess with Perl back then, or mess, mess with Perl now, it is a, a beautiful language in its own way. It's not as readable as, let's say, Python, but it has a, a lot of very strong characteristics. Now, the trick was, can you learn the nuances of the Perl language enough to be able to execute commands on a CGI script on a web server running on who knows what backend? And that's where my mind started to really go deep into that stuff. I try to understand it better. After I started to learn CGI, then I needed to learn Unix. Because in those days, and this is pre, this is obviously pre mid-2000s, that's when IIS took over the internet, and you had a whole bunch of millions of uh, Windows servers running uh, websites. So this is prior to Code Red and Code Blue and all that fun stuff. Neil, you might remember that time. And so a lot of the servers back then were running what? Solaris, SunOS. And in order for me to learn Unix, I had to find access to a Unix server. And in order for me to do that, I had to break into a web server using a CGI vulnerability, which was a code injection, to read the password file on the backend server, then take that password and download John the Ripper, 
And then with John the Ripper, I just let it brute force on my machine, which was running a, a DOS command prompt. I was still on Windows back then. And then I got a password. And then I had to read the next article, which was how to break into systems over telnets. Right? Another cheesy, like, you know, two and a half page article written by another teenager. And it was basically, here's what you need. You need telnets. You need an IP address or a host name and user and password combination. I had the username and password combination. I was on Windows, so fortunately I did have Telnet. And in 98, I believe that's when Putty came out. So it made things so much easier. 97, 98 is when Putty came out. So now I'm logging into servers and have no idea what to do. Okay? One day I go to the library and I find a book. And I know I'm going to botch the, the title of the book. But it's basically... Somewhere along the lines of the internet's first cyber war. You guys remember that? It's a story of masters of deception in the Legion of Doom. Yeah. <laughs> Great story. Great story. And, you know, there was one person in that story, which I, I still haven't met yet. I would love to meet. And if you guys know him, you know, send him my regards. But Fiber Optic, the Unix hacker. Right? That was, that was him. He was the guy. Everybody else is into freaking and everybody else is into all this other stuff. But Fiber Optic or Marco Beans, real name. He was the Unix wizard. So I said, I want to be like this guy. In order for me to be like that guy, I have to learn Unix. So this is the story of how I accidentally became a systems administrator. And that's how I started my career. So it's a long story, but that's how we ended. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome, man. There's a lot of historical throwbacks. Oh, my Lord. Mm -hmm. Oh, gosh. And then... Yeah, I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole more than you already did. But that's awesome, dude. (laughs) And and I think what we were leading into before we hit record was, you know, the requirement around why, right? And you've said this a little bit as well. If you wanted to do these things, like you mentioned, you you had to go find a box online because it's not like you could A, either afford one or B, someone was willing to offer you up a training space. That didn't exist. But back in the 90s, as wild, wild west as it technically was, Mm -hmm. hacking into a box simply to go poke and prod didn't outright get you arrested, depending on who owned it. (laughs) Right. That's right. But it was the land of everybody's both ethical and unethical and their approach to everything because the ethics of doing the shit hadn't been defined, which was fine. As long as the business could still move forward, you eventually told them that you were in there. Everybody was pretty hunky-dory, which was nice. But yeah, so we moved beyond this, right? So we got your sysadmin, you get started. I always, Mm -hmm. you know, we're going to jump up a few years, but you you obviously had some issues and some things that kind of tipped you over the scale a little bit towards doing more purposefully things, right? Mm -hmm. I've always been curious about this a little bit. I know a little personally of the background, both from your podcast and some other things about what got you there. I think it's, for me, it's an interesting story to get to understand, you know, how you go from learning and doing things back before it was technically legal to now you're on the other side of the fence, whether on purpose or not. Uh, or whether because the laws changed, mm-hmm. uh, but, you know, how did you how did you find yourself transitioning from from support squad to the greater Volsec mm-hmm. Sabu days? If 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 that's a fair story to talk to, yeah, no, we could definitely touch on that, and I'll I try to keep it more brief. You know, the the reality is is that the security industry back then was very much closed close to people like me, at least the way I felt it. I, I applied for jobs. I never got a call back. And it was very one-dimensional. And a lot of the guys from the early security industry, I'm sure you remember this name. I know you've been around. A lot of those guys from that early security industry period, I'm talking about like the mid to late 90s and early 2000s, 
they all came from like the military. They all came together. They started building their businesses together. So not all of them were in the military, right? Some of them, you know, they just were born into it. Their fathers were probably involved in software development or they had the luxury. Like, the, you look at Robert Morris and the Morris Worm. His father was like a professor. So he had access to Unix systems. He had access to technology. In my case, I was literally building computers off the streets, man. And I was, you know, trying to get online and, you know, cracking into Earthlink accounts. So I could maintain that dial-up connection. You know what I mean? That was, that was the only way I could keep online because I couldn't afford it. But as you move forward there, you know, there was one change for me. There was one thing that changed my direction, my path. Yes, I initially started off very innocent. I assure you that, you know, even when I broke into a system, I made sure that I would, you know, maintain it. I would patch the vulnerability. I would update the system when necessary. In fact, I think Dave Attell had a good joke about that, right? Back in those days, servers were much more unstable than they are today. And 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 Dave said, I think his joke was, I forgot when I read this at. It must have been like when he was at, at stake at that time, you know? Or maybe I'm, I'm mixing the people up. So if, if the audience knows, feel free to, to correct it. But his messaging was something some, somewhere along the lines of, well, you know how you know that someone's broken into your network? Your systems are running well, yeah. right? <laughs> because the attackers are going to get in. They want to maintain persistence. They're going to update the system. They're going to patch the vulnerability. They don't want to rehack to take place because then you lose access. But with that all in mind, all of that information, what changed my perspective and changed my direction was the conversation I had with my grandmother. My grandmother was born and raised in a place called Lattes in Puerto Rico. And Lattes, if you know, if you do your history or you do a book report in Puerto Rico, you'll know is that that was the home of what they called El Grito de Lattes. So the, the Lattes' cry, right? A war cry. It was basically a place of revolution. And they tried to revolt against the Spaniards. And the Spaniards did not, they weren't passive in their, in their, their reaction. So it introduced me to geopolitics. It introduced me to, you know, hacktivism. And around that same time, you had the cult of dead cow, you know, pu- pushing and conceptualizing hacktivism. So I personally credit hacktivism with the cult of dead cow because they're the first ones that kind of were talking about, at least from what I remember. I'm sure others remember maybe earlier references but CDC were talking about it. And what, what their approach was is, hey, so we had a good success with BO, or back orifice. That was, that was their Trojan, right? They came out with BO2K, and part of the BO2K uh, project was to allow Chinese dissidents to be able to connect out to the internet and circumvent the Great Firewall of China. That was a massive project. So shout out to CDC for even thinking about that back in like 1999, 2000, okay? So with all of that in mind, I gave you guys some context. Now I'm like, okay, I like the concept of hacktivism. I'm going to participate. And my first my first hacktivist operation was in the year 2000. I was 16, I believe, or a little older maybe. Might be a little bit older. And it was against the Puerto Rican government and the United States Navy. And that was because there was a contract in place where the Puerto Rican government allowed the United States Navy to use a small island by the name of Vieques for the testing of uranium, depleted uranium shells. The problem with that is that there were people actually living on that island. And so it became a very big local political issue. And then it started to creep over to New York, creep over to Illinois. Because a lot of Puerto Ricans on the island had moved to Illinois and New York and Boston and so on. So now it became like a, an American issue. We need to talk about this. There was success there. And almost immediately in the next year, 2001, I started attacking 
But this is where I became a threat actor for China and Russia. I spent the next five plus, maybe more years attacking Russian and Chinese infrastructure. So I probably cannot travel to China or Russia for a long time. Maybe never. Although I would love to see, love to visit St. Petersburg and, and check out parts of China. But that's what my, that's where my, my hacktivist career started. Now to, you know, speed this up a little bit, right? Cause I know we, we only have so much time. In around 2007-ish or 6-ish was when you saw the video from WikiLeaks of the Apache helicopter gunning down the journalists in Iraq. And that changed my perspective, man. Maybe even radicalized me. I was like, oh, no, this is not cool. And as much as I supported the United States military and the United States government, obviously, I'm, I'm still attacking Russia and China at the time. Um, I was like, mm, you know, this is not cool. So I began looking at, you know, those different organizations at the same time, Anonymous was becoming a thing, but I ignored it because I was always a lone hacker. I was the one actor by myself breaking into networks, infrastructure solo. I never really worked in a group. And I, even though I did have a group called Pure Elite back then, and I was participating in Hackwiser for a long time as well, or for a short time as well. I mean, I was like, you know what? Let me check this out. And eventually I got involved with Anonymous later on. I saw that out of the thousands of people in their IRC network, it was maybe a handful of actual hackers, people like me. And, you know, the Arab Spring happened. I participated in that, the Tunisian situation, uh, Libya and Syria, and, and, and then you also had Iran. Let's just say it was nonstop hacking for like five, six-ish years straight, breaking into every government agency and organization I could think of. And by the way, this is a fun fact for the audience. The United States government did not care that I was attacking foreign interests. It was only until I started attacking U.S. interests is when I got that knock on the door. You know what I mean? Fun fact for the audience. Maybe maybe rules have changed since then. But apparently back then, hacking foreign governments was not technically illegal for me. And yeah, that leads us to today. There was a knock on my door, like I just referenced to a moment ago. And the FBI gave me a reality check. They said, you know, Hector, you seem pretty bright, but you're dumb in a way because you're doing this stuff. And you, you know, you're not really thinking this through. The problem that you have is you have two girls in the house. So we need to figure this one out because you're going to go to prison for a long time and you're gonna, probably going to lose the girls as well. And so that's when you have that reality check. Sometimes in life we need that. Yeah. And yeah. No, I mean, I think. I hope I answered your question. No, here. it does. So I think, once again, I, I asked because it's good background. I had, had a fortunate privilege, maybe. I was working on the government side of the house contractor at the time when Anon kicked off as well as eventually obviously Wolsec. And so I was I was on the the other side of the fence looking you know, looking in as a lot of this stuff was happening. But historically speaking, there's definitely some things I did of a questionable nature, not to the extent of yours in respect to getting caught and, and other things, sure. but I definitely have my private moments behind closed doors where I did stuff I probably shouldn't have. Hopefully nobody's we're way past statute limitations, so we're good. Absolutely. You're good. <laughs> All right, for our listeners, but for legal purposes, he didn't do anything illegal. Thank you. Okay. For people listening, I haven't done anything illicit or illegal in at least 12 years. I want to tell you off that, that I'm aware of. That being said, no, I think it's good background because, and this, I think this gets us to the state of affairs today, right? Which once again, we were alluding to earlier on before hitting record, where 90s, getting started for those in our age bracket that were curious about the things fnet my gosh but then you had loft and heavy industries out there publicly promoting certain types of efforts in the 90s as well right the first congressional mm -hmm. hearing on what would be cybersecurity uh, with loft and everybody right 
Um, they were great. Yeah, it was amazing, especially retrospectively thinking about all the groundwork. And then 2000s, early 2000s, the China-U.S. cyber war, when the plane went Remember down that? and all that other junk, right? We had Lion and oh, yeah. Ugly Gorilla and, cock, and anyway, large group of people on that side, large group of people on this side. Wonderful experience because once again, like you said, if you're hacking them and nobody gives an F, if you're hacking us, then that's obviously the line um, back then. And then you flash forward, you get galvanized politically, which is very understandable. And, you know, that obviously kicks off movements, lessons learned, you move forward. And now we're here where, you know, not only are you, you know, turn the page to more of a, a wider perspective hats wise, you know, you're also lessons learned. But on top of this, you obviously own a company you're working for, you know, you have your own uh, consultancy type approach to things, pen testing, all these other fun things. But I don't think anyone in our age bracket could really get to where you're at today had they not done the things that we did way before. Mm -hmm. I think those are life lessons that today people are never going to have access to illegally or otherwise um, easily and freely. And I think those all build into where you can have this fun perspective around the, the impact of security today and the necessities of what's there. And then obviously at some point in the next 20 minutes, you know, we'll maybe throw out the word zero trust and get your take on that. <laughs> but yeah, no, so I appreciate that. I, I like the deep dive. I like the, the memory lane here and the history. I told Elliot when he, when he told me that you were booked, I was like, man, this is going to be one of those ones, you know, I'm like, do I ask for his autograph or do I just sit back and just play cool? Cause you know, like I said, you know, you're well, part of the history of our generation for what it means to, you know, for cybersecurity. So it's cool stuff. So, Sure. Well, come to New York. We'll get some steaks at Peter Luger's, man. Wow. And, you know, we'll have a nice time. Dude, Trust me. I will. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, um, <laughs> oh, yeah, man. Come through. But, uh, but no, it, uh, it's fantastic, Neil. And I appreciate all that. You know, the reality is. And by the way, kudos to you for remembering Lion. Lion was like, that was like, I, could, I looked at Lion like a counterpart to us, man. He was oh, he was dude, gangster. Was... In fact, he's a major player in like the Chinese military. I'm not sure you know that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. He went to jail, right? I yeah. think most, mm-hmm. if you pay attention to history, for those not aware, Lion was basically the guy who led the the Chinese patriotic hacker movement in, what was that, 99, 2000? Yeah, that's right. And mm-hmm. then uh, disappeared under the radar for the better part of seven, eight, nine years. Supposedly went to jail, mm-hmm. supposedly was shot, supposedly just died of cigarettes, whatever. Shows back up again, uh, what, 2006, 7, 8, somewhere in that Somewhere time. around yeah. there, yeah. And he's in like full, like regalia, full uniform. Yeah, like full-fledged <laughs> man of the hour dude. And uh, yeah, I, I was I was following along when he came back, as I think a lot of us might have been. It's like, holy crap. Yeah. What's he going to break now? Uh, but yeah, that, that was some fun times for sure. So no, so once again, for everybody... History is important in any effort here. And this is why I think, once again, this is an important conversation. We, we have a piece of history. Granted, you know, relatively speaking, we're not ancient, but uh, we will be someday. And it's good things to remember. We have to know where we came from. We have to know how we got to where we're at. And more aptly, mm-hmm. we have to figure out how to do our lessons in a more politically correct or legal manner so people don't have to worry about well, learning life's lessons the hard way like some of us might have. So that's it. Oh, yeah. With that in mind, well, yeah. Yeah, and Neil, if you don't mind, the one thing I'll say for the audience here is that, you know, I, I brought up a lot of interesting points and, and parts of our history, and there's some good nostalgia in there, but I'm not glorifying any of that. I, I look at it as, as learning steps that we all had to take at that point. You got to remember that in 2023, right now where we stand, you, if you want to get into cybersecurity and do exactly what I did and learn what I did and work, learn what Neil did and learn what he does, you have 
platforms. You have TryHackMe. You could go to Google Cloud and sign up and get a free terminal, free shell. You can learn Unix there if you want. You could, there's, you know, there's, there's Hack the Box and there's HackerOne if you want to practice on a real environment rather than a theoretical or hypothetical environment. We didn't have that luxury. So our route was different. Our path was different. But now it's not so much. Now, if you want to get into security, you can do it right. You can follow some really good people on YouTube, for example, that are fantastic. I mean, I wish I had the skills to the, the, the communication skills, rather. And, and, and of course, what Elliot does, right, with creating media and creating content and, and, and editing. Right. I don't have the I don't have the patience for any of that. So <laughs> otherwise, I'd be on YouTube, you know, straight up. You know what I mean? Yeah. But but it's it's a different era now, and you know I, I really want folks, especially those of the, those that are parents, or even the young listeners, to listen to your to your uh, episode today. Um, that yeah, you could do exactly what we did with the differences. You have a you have a legal path to do it, and it's way more content now. You yeah. know what I mean? So hopefully that inspires at least one person. No, ditto, man, and yeah, that's awesome. So I moving forward a few steps. You know, maybe yeah. trying to give Elliot parts of the tech talk that he wants to have, other than. Life history lessons here, which give again. me five minutes and we're we're golden. We'll we'll call sure. it clear. But honestly, the background of the story—that's what we're here for. No, it's all gotcha. good. I mean, Elliot, was there a lingering question now that we've got the story that you wanted to kick off the more topic-oriented for our podcast perspective? Before I, I take mean, us down another, we show? can add a little context towards the legal side now. Maybe pen testing and how it impacts things. If you want to go yeah. down that route, but you know, as our listeners can attest to. I've never been able to wrangle Neil, and that's what makes the show great. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, we'll talk about whatever you guys want. Pen testing is really solid. It's an interesting place to be in right now because, you know, a lot of companies are looking at pen testing as like a commodity. Some companies that have to hire a, a vendor for pen testing services are looking at it like, oh, man, there's another regulation, another compliance rule, something else within our industry. We have to check this off. And I want to share some lessons for the audience out there that have to deal with hiring a vendor because there's a lot of them out there that are still, you know, one thing I didn't mention is back then security, even though it was very young, there was a lot of snake oil. There was a lot of garbage out there. And this is why the security industry took quite some time to, to grow because if you wanted to get a specific product or service or something, let's say zero trust was a thing back then, right? You know what they would send you? They would send you a nice big invoice and contract and they'll send you an appliance, an appliance that you would have to connect to your network and it'll do all the little zero trust things in the background. And then you would have to pay rent or lease that appliance for the next 10 years of your life and burn through your budget for another 12 years. But thankfully, we're in a much better place. We're in a much better space. Um, and, you know, I, I see you nodding your head, Elliot. But I think we're Sometimes. Better- I mean, the yeah. antithesis of why we created this podcast was people using zero trust so horribly wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, you know, you have to... Okay, from my perspective on the offensive side, um, I understand where you're coming from, right? And I also think that a lot of people pushing the concept are more on the sales marketing side. They may not understand the technology and or they may not understand the concepts. They may not know what micro-segmentation is. They may not know what access controls are. You know what I mean? And I feel like and whenever I'm dealing with salespeople and they start with the gimmicky stuff, I'm like, all right, let's break that down. I'm not admonishing you. and I'm not disrespecting you right now. But let's talk about it. I want you to be an understanding of the topic you're talking about. And that'll even help you with your sales process. Because trust me, there's a lot of seats. This, you know, the the big, the big, you know, uh, thought. Uh, I forgot the word. I was about to say something there. But the big point that I want to make is that a lot of 
folks believe that CISOs are necessarily, or not necessarily so technical, right? They're more on the executive side, which is usually the case in many, in many times. But there are CISOs out there that are highly technical. You may run into a Neil that fell into the CISO position. And so if you're a sales, I know, I see you, I see you shaking your head. But, I, it, but I've met those guys, Neil, right? And they're very brilliant. They were probably with us on IRC back in the days. And so they understand the concepts. Now, as for sales and marketing person, if you're throwing out jargon, you're throwing out words, it doesn't make it, 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 it's very clear that what you're saying doesn't match what you what 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 you're trying to sell, right? Or it seems like you don't know what you're talking about. That CISO is going to go somewhere else. So now you're losing business because you don't really know the concept that you're trying to sell as a package. So yeah, you know, that's I think that's a really big bad sales marketing situation. I think we can improve it as a community. You know what I mean? But first, we need to make sure that everybody's on the same page as to what zero trust really means. And that's a big problem. I'm sure you guys have seen that, right? Yeah. So Yeah, definitions are definitely key, especially when you're trying to, well, let's back up, standardizations and the the right. application and acceptance of standards are critical. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the problem is now, it, it's twofold. We talk about how easy it is now to break into the scene if you really want to legally. <laughs> break into the scene and do things the right way, free or otherwise. But the one thing that I think has become more burdensome is policy and standards. You know, whether it's ISO, NIST, pick a flavor of the day, there's now more bodies out there trying to do standards. And and Elliot knows this firsthand. But we have this breadth of new terminologies, this breadth of new etiologies. And every other company, the moment that term comes out, decides they want to come up with the standard for what it means. And that's whatever sticks against the wall, right? 10 years later, but it's a big issue. So trying to define zero trust, trying to define policies around it. The word's been around for a while, but we didn't start having a more consolidated approach to the construct until maybe the last few years. And I would say arguably not until government finally pitched in and started saying something about it, you know, a year ago. So that makes it hard, right? So thinking about the ball forward piece here with y'all and, and pen testing, I know y'all have a more proactive approach to the pen testing assessments, right? It's, it's not an on demand in the true sense of, Hey, let's hire someone once every six months. Y'all's approach is more, why are you waiting? This should be a rolling kind of effort, right? Exactly right. And so question being, you know, from y'all's perspective on this, why is that so important relative to just, you know, what we do progressively, you know, once or twice a year kind of thing? Why do you feel like that that's the right impact to have? Yeah, I am very big on continuous assessments, continuous pen testing. I feel that point in time pen testing is obsolete. I mean, you know, we've been doing it for 30 years, right? I'll give you guys real world examples with real customers without mentioning the names, obviously, right? So I had to deal with a, an engagement for clients. They brought me in to do an internal red team. And for the audience that don't know the difference between a pen test and a red team, there's, there's, there's stark differences, right? So when you're doing a pen test, you're obviously going to do everything that a vulnerability scan would do, but you would identify potential attack paths. You would then try to validate those uh, vulnerabilities within those attack paths. And then you try to create a story. Well, I used, I used uh, you know, I noticed that on your network, you guys were allowing DACPV6 broadcasting. That allowed me to play man in the middle or what they call now adversary in the middle. And then I redirected that traffic to a bunch of Windows servers that had SMB signing not enforced. Now I have a relay attack. Now I could also create a, so- a proxy to those hosts and then use them to bounce off and connect to the Active Directory and leverage privileges, right? Whatever. Okay. 
So we had a client where they brought us in for, for oh, and, and, and let me finish that thought. So that's a pen test you're going to gist, and you want to try to help the client understand the findings and, of course, the severity and then, of course, impact and so on and so forth. Then when you have red teaming, it's a little bit different, right? Red teaming is, a, is of course, a military term, and, and those in the military practice red teaming a, a lot. The concept there would be, okay, let's put together a, a sort of strike force or a red team, or in, in Sweden, I think it's called a tiger team, right? And ironically, one of my first my, my first security ventures was tiger team security. But anyways, the idea there is that in the military unit, that unit in particular, they would get tasked with uh, a base, let's say a base in Puerto Rico or a base somewhere. The idea would be, hey, can we identify gaps in the security posture of that base? Can we get inside? Are we able to jiggle some keys? Can we just break the lock by force, et cetera? You get the idea. And then, of course, there are crown jewels or objectives. That's the main differentiator. So when you apply that to uh, internal network or external network, whatever, you have to work with the client to identify their concerns. Case in point, hey, we've spent a whole bunch of money on MFA implementations, right? Can you circumvent MFA, whatever that means? Can you log into our domain controller over RDP without an MFA prompt? And if you're able to find an MFA prompt, can you use something like MFA fatigue to make a, a domain administrator just press yes and allow you into the server? So with the red team, you're looking at objectives, right? Specific case studies and or, um, depending on the rules of engagement, go beyond what a pen test would do, right? So in a pen test, you would validate a vulnerability, maybe even exploit it, right? Depending. In a red team, you would leverage, you would identify, validate, leverage that vulnerability to exploit the system and then move laterally and go as far as you can within your scope, right? Okay, cool. So when you have clients these days saying, hey, we need a pen test to address a regulation concern, a regulatory concern, or we're trying to get a cheaper cyber insurance premium, we need a pen test once a year and we need some sort of attestation letter. How can you help us with that? Cool. You come in as the pen tester. And the client waited to the third or fourth quarter. And so they need this done by like December 31st. Otherwise, they're probably going to get fined or they're probably going to get blazed with high premiums, depending on the scenario. And they're like, yeah, so it's the last week of December, or the, uh, you know, the last two weeks of December. Half our staff are gone, so we may not be able to detect some of that stuff. But, uh, you know, go ahead, do your pen test. And by the way, we have 20,000 internal assets. You have about a week and a half to finish this, so good luck. <laughs> Right. So from a pen tester's perspective, that's that's like asking me to take on Michael Jordan on one on one and then score at least one point within five minutes. Right. That's probably not going to happen. Now, if you're smart about it, even if you are in that situation, I agree. Sometimes it does happen. What you want to be able to do from the from the from the organization side is have a scope that's very realistic for your pen testing vendor. OK, something like, hey. We want to do an active directory audit, so please use Bloodhound. Please use whatever it is you need to use to identify potential issues with our active directory configuration. Please use you know whatever tools you need to do to identify potential access controls issues. Please look at our shared. We're still using SMB for for file shares. Please look at those permissions, right? And so yeah. Now going back to the example I was trying to give you guys, we had an engagement where we identified some vulnerabilities, and literally the week after. You had the Spectre Ops team. Big shout out to those guys. And they came out with their research paper on Active Directory Certificate Services vulnerabilities from ESC1 to ESC11. That's at least 11 different attack vectors in an Active Directory PKI environment. So now the client, even though they're running out of time, they're hitting me up like, hey, 
what do you know about this? I'm like, don't worry about it. I've already ordered this system. I've already compromised AD. I got you. Check out the final report, right? That's where you would hope you would get in a pen testing team. So definitely, you know, as an organization, do your research and find a team that's research forward or research oriented, like a Spectrops, or even my team, right? Black Hills InfoSec out of Florida, right? These are these are companies that, you know, they specialize in research, even trusted sex. Shout out to them. These are teams that are focused on research and they're going to make sure that the pen test is solid. Otherwise, you're just going to get a vulnerability scan. You're going to get a Nessa scan with a nice logo on it. You know, you're giving me some chemical flashbacks here from when I was my last, my final job in the military government side yeah. contract. I, yeah. I was the guy who had to go through and write up all the formalized reports on the red team Oof. exercises for the Air Force. Not the guy who got to go out and have the fun, just the poor schmuck <laughs> who had to review all the fun and formalize oh. the outputs. Um, no, yeah, that makes sense. After action reports and yeah, all that? Yeah. That's one times. may or may not have been one of the reasons why I finally left the contracting side. So, <laughs> um, with that being said, you know, I, I think, you know, fair points, though, from both the timing and and ability to answer the right questions when legal comes calling. But not only that, if we think about this from trying to move our security. I, I, I get up and have some talks every once in a while about reactive versus proactive defense posturing yeah. and, and how to go from A to B, at least at a high level strategy wise. Um, Sure. You know, everybody always asks the question, how many of you want to be in a more proactive posture? And pretty much everybody always raises their hand. Then you ask the following question, how many of you all actually think you're proactive in your approach? And about 92% of the hands go down. And the remaining five in the room, when you ask them another question about, you know, what are you doing to be proactive? Then they shut up. But I, I think this posture, you know, being more proactive with the pen testing, being more mm -hmm. iterative, and it becomes a cyclical thing that you apply to, you know, just your all day to day. And this gets us into zero trust a little bit, and and nice. in my opinion, where when we think about compliance, we think about policy. Zero trust today, I think, is sitting at a place which more strictly driven for by policy and compliance ideology, and only a little bit about security policy, even though they're they're wrapped in together, right? Obviously, mm -hmm. but I think we're at that kind of cusp of a point where zero trust is building into being true security versus pure compliance, just like back in the 2010-11 age. All the CISOs were, as they were being created, were compliance driven. Now they're security driven. I think zero trust is in the same phase personally, where it started off as a compliance driven ideology. Now we're into the security driven ideology of it. I think this pen test methodology is a great way. Always check your wall, always check your, your defenses, always keep it moving forward. And anytime you push anything new, it should be tested repetitively and over until you either break it or push something else new. Exactly um, right. Yeah. yeah. You have to be able to validate your implementations. You know, some companies, what they do is they'll, they'll see a really cool product and buy it and implement it, and that's it. They move on. Or rather, they'll deploy it and move on. That doesn't really work because a lot of these tools are fantastic. Let's talk about EDRs, for example. EDRs are very cool, right? Some of them are very good. Others, not so much. <laughs> and, you know, depending on the product you go with, right, they might be plug and play. But the one thing you notice, I just for just, just to give you guys some, he uh, some heads up here, I've spent like the last four years plus researching and working with breach and attack simulation or emulation, you know, and that was a very fun time in my life because even though I was never a malware guy, that really wasn't my thing. I still needed to be able to answer questions for my clients. So I have to sit there and I have to learn these concepts. I had to get into malware research and development and I had to learn what the attackers in the real world are using in terms of TTPs, right? And the techniques and the tactics, the tactics, the procedures, the methodologies, 
what it is that they do once they get into your network and how they move laterally. And, you know, it's different when you're a hacktivist. Because when you're a hacktivist, you'll get in and you can sit there for three years and just, just slowly collect information and then one day leak it and be the bad guy, you know. For these ransomware oper- operators or these initial access brokers, right, these guys want to get in quick. They want to get in as easy as possible. They want to make it cheap, right? And then once they get in, they're going to do some lateral movement attempts. They might be noisy, maybe not, depending on the target, right? And then they want to try to identify how they could create the most chaos internally and how to exfiltrate as much data as they can before they're stopped. It's way different methodologies. I had to get into that stuff. And here's what I learned. As you look at EDRs, like I said, some of them are very good, fantastic, without even mentioning the, the product names, to sit down and configure and improve and Every environment is different, okay? So you need to now tailor that EDR configuration to your environment. You have to make sure that you're seeing the actual alerts as they're being detected, okay? You have to do more work. Now, this is where it comes back to Neil's point um, on, on proactivity. You have to be more proactive in your measures. If you start to see a bunch of alerts, instead of looking at your SIM and saying, wow, yeah, this is this is probably normal activity because I've seen it 10,000 times a day, no, you want to look at and, and investigate and triage these events as they happen. And now I could imagine it'll be very expensive the bigger your organization is, but then that's when you bring up a third-party vendor to help out. You know what I mean? You can't do everything by yourself. Yeah. And you need to figure out a way to budget that into your into your security program. And here's how I'm seeing some companies doing it, right? They may not want to they may want may not want to like destroy their security budget for the year, right? But they could incorporate that. I've seen this in a couple companies. They'll incorporate bringing in a SIM or a SOC team, rather, right, as like one of their software acquisition budgets, right? So they leave the security budget for something else. And I've seen a lot of play in different companies. It's, you know, I've had the fortune to experience a lot of it. But yeah, no, I mean, it, it becomes difficult when you're buying products, you're deploying it and just saying, okay, well, I think we're good. No, you're not, right? You need people to help you out with that. And I think with Zero Trust, you have similar issues, right? You could buy a Zero Trust application or appliance or product and set it and forget it like the old ronco commercial back in the <laughs> 80s and 90s right but the reality is no you still have to be proactive about it you still have to maintain the logs you still have to validate that your tools actually work if you don't then what's the point you know yeah 100 100 so i think i mean we're mostly up on time and i don't know where we're at for overage here but i had one last you know i'm, I'm gonna throw it back to ellie because i know he's gonna ask the same thing i'm gonna ask so i'm gonna no no lay down what, as long as you're not gonna ask him what his definition is of zero trust is because i think we burned that out a million years ago you you go ahead man no i was just gonna give a shout out because he's throwing out a lot of good names from a company perspective but he hasn't actually other than say or my company but he hasn't really actually said what it is so I feel like we at least throw that down just a little bit from that perspective and, you know, talk for about two seconds, Hector, on what you and your company provide relative to this because, you know, specifically, right? I think that that's a yeah. fair shout out and a fair play and, and people need to understand that the internet legends do still have companies and they deserve <laughs> money too. <laughs> uh, yeah, right now, I'm, I'm you know, I, I would say I'm a director of research at a company called Alacronet. They are the West Coast. And they're VAR. They're basically a reseller that brought me in to build them a security team, right? So big shout out to them for thinking outside the box and, and, you know, doing their thing. You know, it's near the end of the year. So eventually I'll probably branch off and do my own thing. And, you know, I'll let you guys know what that is when that time comes. But the reality is, my friends, that, you know, Neil, I do appreciate, you know, the, uh, the, the shout out there and the time on that. You know, I think that 
if any if anybody takes anything from this conversation is that you know there's, there's a lot of context it's a lot of nuances in security it's not black and white right i can't just say hey here's this really cool zero trust product or hey here's this really cool ndr or xdr or mdr or edr and yeah here you go enjoy once you once you deploy it, you're good no you know you have to be more proactive in your approach and if and me personally neil i've always the way I, I push it out to people especially those that i mentor right I tell them, hey, if you're going to go into the defensive side of work, I want you to be proactive, absolutely, but I also want you to be preemptive. I want you to be able to look at your security program and say, okay, here's where we stand. Let's do an impromptu tabletop exercise. We don't need an outside vendor to help us with that. We could sit down, all of us, with all the department heads and all the engineers and start asking questions. What's the worst case scenario if our CEO is compromised? What's the worst case scenario if our intern is compromised? Um, how are dev- our developers dealing with using you know public resources like a, like an external github or git, git bucket or whatever you know what what is it that we're going to do if there is a breach in fact how resilient are we can we do can we say that we're our business is resilient to to a, a breach can we deal with recovery how fast can we recover right these are all the questions that you can start asking and as you start asking those questions and getting answers you start to identify gaps in your organization then at that point you start bringing in vendors when you need them you know what I mean so I'm not I'm not I'm not much on on self promoting Neil, but I tell you I, I hope you guys you know if you have any questions feel free to hit me up you know I'm on LinkedIn feel free to send me a message if you have a question by all means. I guess that wraps up the other part of the question is where to hit Jeff at so we're good there too. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah. mm. That's me being preemptive Neil hey, if you don't mind. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> yeah I'm 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 pretty much on LinkedIn I do have a Twitter account I haven't used it since the Sabu days I honestly like, I came when I came back. I'm not sure you guys know this. I was banned off the internet for a while. I could not use a computer for quite some time. So I think 2015 is when I came back. <laughs> and I argued with some of the folks and then went back into the shadows, went back to work. If you want to hit me up, find me on LinkedIn, send me a message, feel free. We'll go from there. Send me back awesome. over to you, Alec. Yeah. All right. So I do have one last question. I think we have a hodgepodge of kind of listeners. And I am annoying Neil to spin off this new concept that he's working on so i would imagine we probably have entry-ish level practitioners that probably are stuck in the sock what would you say to folks that want to move towards pen testing or red team something to that extent now that you obviously are well versed and experienced in it but what you know what would you encourage people to do in the legal senses if they want to hone their craft and focus on something to that extent and the way I'm going to answer this is, is is with the assumption that even if they want to stay at the analyst level, even when they want to stay at SOC, they want to be the best at SOC as they want to be. Mm. It's going to, I'm going to give you the same answer for both questions, for, for both premises, right? And that's going to be you have to practice. You have to learn. You have to read. I'm going to tell you my methodology, and you guys can laugh at me if you want, and you know, or you can critique if you need to. But I wake up at 4 or 5 in the morning every day. I go through InfoSec Twitter. I go through Mastodon. I go through Bug Track. I go through mailing lists. I'm looking for new vulnerabilities. I'm looking for new attack vectors. I'm looking at new tools. I go on GitHub. I'm looking for new offensive tools. I'm constantly looking at and researching and reading threat intel reports and new malware analysis. I'm looking at VirusTotal. I'm going to NetSec on Reddit. Like I'm going to all these places. Why? Because just like in any other job, with the exception of maybe, I don't know, art, maybe, I don't know. And maybe I'm wrong on that. I'm not an artist. I can't speak. But you as the practitioner will become obsolete very quickly. And in order for you to continue with your career and move forward, you have to be 
very similar to how Neil and I agree on continuous validation and continuous testing and continuous this, continuous that, being proactive. You also have to be proactive in your career path. All right. So you could be the very best sock analyst out there or you could be the very best hacker you want to be. But you have to learn these techniques. And by the way, it's not a one man show. Right. Or one woman, one woman show. It is a team effort. So take advantage and work with people, network, meet folks in the community, start making friends like Elliot and Neil, right? Because any little conversation is going to spark a new path for you. So you have to be proactive in your in your endeavors. And that, that would apply to both the SOC folks on the defensive side and blue team. And it also applies to the red teamers. I think more to the red teamers because once they're, once there's new techniques they're not aware of, they're not going to be effective in the next engagement. So just a heads up on that. That is a fantastic answer. Definitely went a little more in depth than I was hoping for, which is even better. My bad. But <laughs> no, 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 no. That, that that is what I'm hoping for. Oh, you thought um, you were gonna tell you know, him just to go read Hackers for Dummies or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Why meanwhile not? <laughs> Yeah, no. Meanwhile I have like I know one of Neil's answers is like, oh yeah, just get like one of these guys. And he's yeah. got like two or three by now. It's like, yeah, just, you know, go try to break into your garage or something to that extent. See how that works out. Yeah, mine's still um, in my backpack for my trip. I had to get out of the parking garage. There you go. <laughs> yeah, definitely hone your craft. Absolutely. You know, and uh, this one thing that I, you know, I tell folks a lot these days is that, you know, you have a lot of resources. Most of them are free. If you want to learn like deep technical stuff, I don't know this guy personally, but I, I watch his videos all the time. Ipsec on YouTube, that guy's—he literally walks you step by step through each each VM that he's hacking into, he's breaking into. You know that kind of knowledge is fantastic. And you look at another YouTuber like Live Overflow, right? He's pretty big, and what I like about him is that he explains concepts, he breaks it down for you. He may, and it, it may not be the same content as Ipsec, but with Ipsec you're looking at the technical side. With Live Overflow, you're looking at the concept side. Now you take both of that together. They're both free. They're both on YouTube. Make sure you give them a nice little like here and there when you appreciate the content. And boom, now you're learning a whole bunch of stuff that that you, you didn't know the day before. And then, of course, take advantage of AI, man. You know, you have access to Bard and Claude and ChatGPT. You know, sometimes you don't have the time to sit there and read a whole book on a topic. So you could summarize with, with ChatGPT or similar. Just be careful with the, with the bad answers. You know what I mean? You have to be aware and validate, right? Emphasis on validate on the results. So I love it. I mean, I, if, if I could sum it up, you're uh, looping things back together on the <laughs> continuous improvement. You got to do that for yourself just as well as you would for your job and what you're trying to secure or protect or harden. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Mm. Beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> That's no, how we'd love to close it out. Yeah. So Hector, thank you so much for giving us a little bit of background and context uh, to your history. Again, infamous, famous hacktivist. However, you would prefer, you know, we really appreciate you, you know, being so open. Obviously, you have your own podcast that continues this conversation. Again, we highly encourage people to go and check that out. I feel like that's probably one of the better ones that are out there. There are dozens and dozens of us out there now. But I appreciate yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, you know, just break it down. Plus, you know, I don't know if like, your counterpart on that, was he one of the folks that kind of, Knocked on your door, or he was the man yeah. that, that knocked on my door and put the cuffs on me. There it is. I it mean, like my you, life. Yeah. You don't get a dynamic like that somewhere else. This <laughs> like the real version of Catch Me If You Can, which I guess that story isn't quite true. Sure. You know, if you want like something more honed in reality, there you go. Definitely check that one out. But Hector, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. 
Yeah, thank you, gentlemen, for having me. It's been a pleasure. And, you know, feel free to hit me up for part two sometime. I'll, I'll be glad to spend some time with you guys. Definitely. Appreciate the memory lane, Hector, as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, maybe I, can, <laughs> maybe I can chase down Mark that you haven't yet had a conversation with and we can uh, do a round two. There you go. Cool. All right. That's it for AZT, everyone. We will be back next week. I don't know. Maybe we'll make this our season finale because it's pretty good. We'll see. All right. Maybe next episode. Otherwise, season three. See you then. We'll figure it out. Bye. Thank you for joining AZT, an independent series. Your hosts have been Elliot Volkman and Neil Dennis. To learn more about Zero Trust, go to AdoptingZeroTrust.com. Subscribe to our newsletter or join our Slack community. Viewpoints expressed during the show do not reflect the brands, employers, or companies of our hosts, guests, or potential sponsors.